and a very warm welcome to the Trapped One Podcast. This week, the Weeping Angels have extracted us from time and space and deposited us in a phantom realm that is rapidly shrinking until we get transported back in time to 1901. This is Jason. I'm Denise. I'm Evan. And we're introducing a new panelist to Trap One for the first time today. Could our new panelist please say hello? Hi, guys. This is Jan. Jan is a longtime friend of mine from the New York Doctor Who scene, and she has quite a long list of achievements. Uh, Jan and I were both at L.I. Who, the Long Island Doctor Who Con, this past weekend. Jan moderated a rather large panel on the main stage on Saturday morning about the Jodie Whittaker era. Jan, what was the name of that panel? Oh, gosh. Um, it was called Triskaidekaphobia, which is the fear is of 13. The fear I think of I pronounced 13. that word right. I can spell it. I may not be able to pronounce it properly. And Jan, do we have a fear of 13? Um, I think most people do. I, I don't know if fear is the right word so much as... Um, I don't even want to say dislike, just concerns about it. That was what, and actually that the panel description was written before flux started. So things were just sort of starting to warm up at the time. And, you know, considering the way series 11 and series 12 were kind of, uh, not embraced by a lot of the fandom. Um, I was just, it was more like, do we have concerns about what season 13 is going to be like? Do we think it could be better than season 11 or 12? So, and I think one of the first things that I said on the panel was, had the panel been held 30 days earlier, my commentary would have been markedly different. But uh, since I enjoyed the first three episodes of Flux so much, um, I was a lot more positive than I thought I was going to be when you originally drafted me onto the panel. So, Jan, you have literally written the book on Doctor Who fandom in the U.S. Where can we find that? Uh, you can get that from ATB Publishing. That's atbpublishing.com. Um, and that's ATB uh, out of uh, Cockleysville, Maryland. And um, it's a great book. I am one of six authors, and I'm probably the lowest on the food chain there. And it's called Red, White, and Who, The Story of Doctor Who in America. And I should point out that ATB, that's Alpha Tango Bravo Publishing, also publishes all the outside-in books. Um, I am in, I think, the first eight or nine. And I think, Jan, you're in even more than I am. I'm in every volume except for the sort of Picard mini volume that was done. And there are the two that are, I, in fact, I just got my copy of the latest X-Files book today in the mail. And the next two that are listed in the back, I'm already in one, which is uh, Twin Peaks. I believe it's called Outside and Fire uh, Walk With Me. And the other one is the Doctor, the new classic series Doctor Who book, which I believe is called Doctor Who Regenerated. Yeah, so the very first outside-in book was mostly reprints on reviews of the classic series, and that was the very first one. And Stacy didn't quite have the format down at that point, so she's redoing it. And we're all going to be submitting essays on different stories. So I did, I had a recycled essay for Time Warrior in the first outside-in, and I'm going to be doing a different story, the Hartnell story for the regenerated volume. I did not volunteer for Twin Peaks, since I'm not really familiar with it. And uh, Jan, one last bit. Where else can we find you podcast-wise? Um, I am on the Return to the Hellmouth podcast, which right now is on a hiatus, uh, which is uh, a rewatch of Buffy and Angel, uh, which started. And I'm, in, I'm not there all the way through, but I am, um, I think, season two and then 
parts of season three and season four. Um, we were on hiatus for a number of different reasons, mainly people's you know, real life got in the way. And we just lost one of our podcasters. Um, so we just lost David H. Adler, uh, which is a heartbreak for all of us. So I'm not sure what's happening with that. And I used to be doing the uh, Drag Hags podcast, which was a rewatch and analysis of RuPaul's Drag Race. And that right now is also on hiatus because we lost my partner in crime there too, the late Jennifer Adams Kelly, also my co-author on uh, Red, White, and Who. So everything that I've done, unfortunately, is not in great shape right now. Hopefully, fingers crossed, everybody here will have better luck. (laughs) And um, I gave my eulogy for Dave Adler at the end of the last Trap One episode that was last week's recording of Flux Chapter 13. And we're here today to discuss Doctor Who Flux Chapter 4, which is Village of the Angels. Now, this is a big episode for us, Season 13, Episode 4. Last week, we talked about how Season 13, Episode 3 came in the same new series slot that Pyramids of Mars occupied in the classic series. Last week, I made the mistake of saying that Pyramids of Mars was a consensus choice for one of the greatest of all time, and then it turns out that Simon Hart was on the panel and he thought it was not one of the greatest of all time. So before we got to Flux Chapter 3... Uh, we had quite a bit of a debate about whether or not Pyramids of Mars was any good. Uh, Village of the Angels comes in a less propitious slot. It occupies Series 13, Chapter 4, which makes it the twin to the Android Invasion. Um, that's not as propitious a slot as Pyramids of Mars, like I said, but we'll see if uh, Village of the Angels manages to stick the landing a little better than the uh, final part of Android Invasion. So let's get to the panel, and Denise, I'm going to start with you for the first question, and then I'll go through Adam and Jan. Uh, So this obviously was the long-awaited return of the Weeping Angels. If you count Time of the Angels and Flesh and Stone, which I think was the name of the Matt Smith two-parter as one story, this is their fourth proper appearance. Blink was their debut. That was another consensus choice for greatest of all time. And then after that came the two-parter, and then finally the Angels Take Manhattan. Uh, My displeasure with Angels Take Manhattan is well-documented elsewhere on the Internet. As someone who has lived and worked in Manhattan for much of my adult life, uh, I thought Angels took liberties with the island, which uh, are just unforgivable. But... That's only my opinion. I could be wrong. Villains are going to villain, you know. They're not going to be nice to a place when they turn up. You're lucky that they you weren't quantum extracted. <laughs> so think on. <laughs> I'm lucky that I can still find my way around Manhattan after they quantum extracted all the neighborhoods out of order. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Denise, starting with you, how did you feel about the Angels in their three previous appearances, and what were you expecting when they came back for their first proper go under the Chris Chibnall reign. I think that they are probably Stephen Moffat's greatest creation um, with regards to monsters. Um, It's a very interesting idea. I haven't seen iterations of it on other shows. And um, I tried to go in with no expectations. I like to be surprised. I don't like to be disappointed if you go in with no expectations you're not disappointed. I like very much that um, they're taking the idea 
of if you have an image of an angel, it becomes an angel. Um, that was very powerful in um, the story with Amy Pond. And um, I also like what they did when they put the recording devices on the angels' heads, because if something is being recorded, it is ipso facto being observed. And I thought that was really clever, but they didn't um, go into that too deeply. It just happened, you know. And uh, so, yeah, there was a lot to like. There were some nice surprises. Um, I'm still haven't spent enough of my life thinking about the power of the angels and what it actually all means, but uh, I'm a busy lady. So. There was a really big twist at the very end, which might impact the way we think about the angels going forward, but we'll come back and talk about that in due course. So Adam, for you, same question. Adam, what was your reaction to the angels after their first stories, and what were you expecting before last night's episode started to air? Well, I mean, I don't think it's a controversial statement to say that the angels are modern Who's most iconic monster, and I think they've earned that, but, you know, no doubt. I think they that would be the case if they'd just been in Blink, but I, I've actually liked all their main story appearances, but I've never been to Manhattan, so I don't know what they've, uh, what they, 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 they did there that was so terrible. Um, as for what I expected, I, I wasn't really sure. I, I, you know, I, I thought they're probably going to vaguely stick to the rules that have been established, but yeah, I didn't really have any, ex um, no, I wasn't. I, I really wasn't sure what to expect. I was curious how they would tie it into the flux and the ongoing story, which they did in a way that I do have slight problems with. Um, may, we might be going to discuss the idea of the angels working for the, the division later. That I, I don't particularly like because I think the great thing about them is they're not an alien, normal alien race. They're we're not really sure what they are. There, there's all that thing in. Um, uh, time of angels about them being ideas or it's kind of hinted that there might be ideas made manifest and if they're just like doing jobs for the cia um that kind of <laughs> demystifies them a bit for me but yeah i'm just gonna say this about angels take manhattan so the whole concept of the weeping angel is that it cannot move when it is observed if somebody is looking at an angel, it is quantum-locked and it can't move. That episode, perhaps for laughs, posits that the Statue of Liberty is a weeping angel itself. And we see the Statue of Liberty literally walk across New York Harbor to snatch somebody, I believe, in the cold open. The Statue of Liberty is probably the most continuously observed object in the history of planet Earth. New York is called the city that never sleeps... There are lots of major roadways on the islands that look out at the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty faces Governor's Island, which in the 1930s was home to a military base, and there would have been somebody looking at the Statue of Liberty 24-7 because military bases are open 24-7. There is no possible scenario when the Statue of Liberty could ever move if it's a weeping angel. Yeah, but it's a brilliant but image. I realize that it's a fantastic it image. It's a brilliant image. <laughs> but I'm veering into William Shatner get-a-life territory here by questioning the science of it. So, Jan, let's segue into you, my fellow native New Yorker. 
what did you like or dislike about the Angels their first few times out, and what were you expecting before you hit play on last night's episode? Okay, well, uh, Blink is one of my favorite episodes, and actually Time of Angels and uh, Flesh and Stone. I mean, I'm a big River Song fan, so that entire two-parter is just one of my favorite stories. Um, as you and I have often discussed, I, Angels Take Manhattan is one of my least favorite stories of the new era. I think it's awful. And you know, you, you, you just stole my line about how there's no way that the Statue of Liberty could ever move because it's constantly being observed for the same reasons. I mean, we discussed that a little bit on the panel that we did together on uh, Saturday. So, yeah, I mean, and I'm also born and raised in the Bronx and then Long Island, worked in Manhattan, spent many, many, you know, years in and out of there. And it's just that that episode drives me crazy just because of the logistics to start with. But but even more than that, even if it was set in another city, just the whole battery farm. In fact, some of the things that were said in this episode this week um, were contradicted by Angels Take Manhattan in terms of battery farms and not being able to survive in uh, interacting with the angels twice. But um, I was very trepidatious because I'm not a big Chibnall fan. And I found that, you know, when he's reusing other people's stuff and as a mutual friend of ours pointed out, um, there's Chibnall never really has invented his own like iconic monster. There's just nothing to the date that anything has gone through. And um, it was very concerning as to what he was going to do to Moffat's creation. Although Moffat is actually has said on, on social media that he's really excited to see what Chris did with his, his babies there. Um, so I was very trepidatious and I'm actually surprised because I liked what happened for the most part. Um, and I think they are iconic monsters. I think they're very scary. And I just think they were a very, very cool concept based on you know, the child's game of stoplight or red light, green light, where, you know, you have to stop moving when somebody looks at you and, you know, but that's a Moffat thing to like find things that, should be benign and fun in childhood and suddenly turn them into nightmares. Which is funny because my kid and I have been watching Squid Games over the last few days, and Squid Game obviously begins with a uh, rather deadly game of red light, green light. So it's funny that uh, you would almost have the same uh, trick going on with uh, Doctor Who, although I think I prefer Squid Games a little more than last night, but we can get into that as time goes by. All right, so that sets the stage. We've talked about the Angels. We've talked about what we liked or disliked about their previous appearances. We talked about our expectations uh, going into last night's episode. I will say that uh, Jan and I were at Elihu all weekend. I left the hotel, which is all the way out on eastern Long Island at about 6 p.m. It took me about two hours to get back to Brooklyn. I am on the western edge of Long Island, very close, in fact, to the parts of Brooklyn that face the Statue of Liberty. So I got home at 8, uh, I had to entertain my kid, we watched another Squid Game, the Dalgona episode, episode 3, which is amazing, by the way, and um, I read Facebook first, and then I started watching the episode at about midnight, and on Facebook I just read one comment after another about how this was the greatest episode of Doctor Who ever, and Doctor Who was so much better when Chibnall isn't writing for it. It was probably a mistake for me to read that, because every... 30 seconds in the episode, I was questioning, wait, this isn't the greatest of all time yet, and I kept waiting for it to be great. Instead of just reacting to the episode cold, I went in with this preconceived notion. And also, Denise, we were saying this before the recording, you kind of need to watch every episode of Flux twice just to get all the nuance, and I've only had a chance to see The Village of Angels once, so perhaps the second time around I'll be able to see it with better eyes, but I... 
was wondering what all the fuss was about, which uh, is not a problem that I had with Flux Chapters 1, 2, and 3. So that was my early take. And before I get to the rest of you guys, we're now going to play a game that I introduced last week, which is shamelessly copied from NPR's news quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And we're going to play the uh, Trap One Panelist Limerick Challenge. Who wants to go first? All right, Denise. I'm going to read out the limerick. Uh, you read out the final word, or try and guess what the final word is. Not Michael Sheard, who was on Grange Hill, nor Leela, who loved to make strange kills. No, it's Kevin McNally, our old twin dilemma pally, who's here to get touched by the... Touched by the... I think we may have stumped a panelist for the first time in the short history yes, of Trap I One Guest he... Limerick. Touched by the angel. <laughs> or an angel. Yeah, that doesn't rhyme with um, kill. <laughs> yeah, I spent the whole week uh, trying to rhyme Grange Hill and angels, and I thought it worked, but I guess it doesn't. And or no, maybe you just really have to have really... an American I, I have a poetry blog. It, it doesn't really <laughs> <laughs> work. I'm sorry. Well, it's very hard to find a rhyme with angel, but I was trying. All right. Yes. Hmm. Since Jan stole that one, uh, Denise, I'm going to give you the second one as well, and then we'll give Adam the last one. These monsters are out on a mission. They're after poor Claire, who has visions. They're trying to find the creature stuck in her mind. You see, these angels work for the... Division. See, that one worked. There we we go. All right. (laughs) I was able to satisfy Denise, the poetry blogger. (laughs) Adam, are you ready for yours? So far, we're one out of two on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. The the audience member wins if they can guess two out of three. So, Adam, this is all riding on you. Her accent, it makes me say, damn. I'm thrilled that she's part of the fam. This young lady named Belle, I think she's really swell, and she's played by Ms. Thaddea. I should really read end credit, shouldn't I? Um, (laughs) I don't actually know what the actress is called, which is bad. I'm a bad fan. I'm a terrible fan. Anybody want to try and steal that one? Graham. All it's right, Daddy Jan. Graham. Jan gets two out of three. Jan is the winner of this week's uh, Trap One Panelist Listener Challenge. Woohoo! Last week, Joe and Simon accused me of making the riddles too easy. I guess this time they were just too hard. Well, I think we're both up past our bedtimes, aren't we, Adam? So, uh, Very much so. I mean, I'm in Norway, so Very much I'm so. <laughs> even later than Adam. So, Yeah, we are recording this late afternoon New York time after I got off work. So it is uh, certainly well after dark over in Europe. Uh, yes, it's quarter to 11 my time. So, Oh, my goodness. I'm going to start off by reading a tweet that I saw last night under the Doctor Who Flux hashtag. This is from at the Prydonian, a gentleman whom I do not know named James Johnson. And he writes the following tweet. The Weeping Angels being contextualized as 1960s Doctor Who monsters is a superb visual choice. They are very much in the upper echelons of monsters and fit the 60s style tremendously. You can just imagine the rickety costumes and effects of classic law of classic angels. The hashtag Doctor Who Flux. 
So last night's episode, at least the first part of it, was set on November 21st, 1967. And when I heard that name being... Well, sorry, when I heard that date being read in the trailer for episode four last week, the very first thing that I did was go back to the Doctor Who episode guide to see if that was a date that had particular significance in the history of Doctor Who. And it does, actually. It was a uh, middle of the week. It was a Tuesday in between Episodes 2 and 3 of The Ice Warriors. And Episodes 2 and 3 of The Ice Warriors are both missing. The reason they had the episode set on November 21st is because the episode aired on November 21st. So it took place... Let's see, that would be uh, 54 years in the past from the audience's point of view. Was it a missed opportunity by not setting the episode on November 18th and having uh, the characters watch a few minutes of the Ice Warriors episode 2, which is now lost? Or would that have been one continuity joke too far? I think the joke would have been a little too far because it seems as though Chibnall is trying to actually line up the date that the Doctor Who episode, this current series, is airing to real dates and times. So we've had at least Halloween and yesterday was the 21st. So it's kind of like some kind of weird synchronicity. So I think the Ice Warrior joke would have been too far unless the episode had actually started, unless uh, the 18th had actually been the date the episode aired. So, so. Well, of course, tomorrow is the 23rd of November, which is Doctor Who's birthday. So um, could have done something with that. Doctor Who turning 58 tomorrow. Ooh, I hadn't even thought of that. That's good. And, of course, today, the 22nd of November, is the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, which is another big date in Doctor Who annals. I will point out, though, Jan, the Ice Warriors, I believe, is the only Doctor Who serial which has a character named Jan in it. Oh, cool. So, it's very iconic for me. There was a TV set that was prominently featured in the 1967 portions of last night's episode, but the character whose TV it was didn't go around talking about Ice Warriors Episode 2. But I guess that was just a... I don't think he was a typical fan, was he? I mean, uh, uh, he was described as, you know, um, completely buried in his work, not married, no children. I don't think... A distinguished old professor distinguished old professor. I don't think Professor Jericho was a Doctor Who fan, but the actor who played him is returning uh, for the first time since 1984. This was Kevin McNally, who was the victim of one of my limericks earlier in the hour. Uh, He was so handsome when he was young. He was in quite a few sort of historical dramas in the 80s and, you know, the R.F. Delderfield novels when when they made those into TV shows and Gosh, he was a handsome devil. He really was back in the day. But, uh, yeah, he's also more recently, he was Jack Sparrow's sort of second in command in the Pirates of the Caribbean films. He was on Downton Abbey. He's married to Phyllis Logan of Downton Abbey. And I actually saw him um, in the West End in Boeing, Boeing. And he's very funny, too. So he's an all around, you know, good actor. And he was dressed much more conservatively last night in his professorial <laughs> tweed than he was dressed in t- Twin Dilemma. It would have been ma- amazing if he'd been wearing the same costume, though, if at one point he just got to get changed and come out in that. That would have been the greatest moments in Flux. 
Twin Dilemma is one of those episodes that I've completely blocked out of my mind for because it's so traumatically bad. So I'll have to look up what he was wearing. I don't remember. Uh, while the rest of us are talking, Jan, go to Google Images and try and find a picture of what he was wearing. It makes Colin Baker's uh, code, which debuted on the same episode, look downright normal. I'm doing it now. So, Adam, I'll start with you. Adam, but it I'll was, start with it you. was the 80s, though. We had a lot of leeway back oh, then. Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's very blue. Oh, <sighs> and shiny. He looks much better in professorial tweed. Oh, yes. You know, another point that I just came up with, imagine if Ice Warriors 2 had recently been recovered and they announced the recovery by showing bits of the episode live last night in November 67. That would have been a great way to tease the reveal of a return missing episode, but I guess it's not to be... But let's get back on topic. Adam, uh, what did you think of Kevin McNally's performance last night, this being his first Doctor Who episode in 37 years? Um, I mean, I thought I thought he was he was great. Um, I've watched the episode twice, and I watched it just before we started recording. Um, and, yeah, very, very good, very strong performance. I mean, I don't think this is the best episode of Doctor Who ever, but it's certainly the best episode of Doctor Who he's been in. Um, oh, come on, that's a very low bar to get over, Adam. Come on, that's hey, a gimme. Get over those bars when you can. You know, no, I, I thought, I thought he was. Um, yeah, he, he, I, yeah, no, I thought he was very good, very, very strong performance. And Jen, you've actually seen him perform on the boards in person. Uh, how did you like his performance last night? I thought he was really good. I mean, it, it's. I'll, I'll say that particular type of role is not very. It, it's pretty easy to do. It's not one that's like hard to, you know, you, it's normally not that bad to mess up. I'm sorry. Like my brain is not working here. Uh, it's very difficult to mess that kind of role up uh, if you're a competent actor, but I thought he was very good. And honestly, as much as Chibnall sometimes gets some, I think the name of Eustatius Jericho is just fantastic. Obviously the doctor liked it as well, but I just think it's just very, very professorial and very doctor who, and it, it works. And he lived up to that role. Um, I actually saw it twice like you, I came back from the convention late. Actually, I went out to dinner in a movie with a friend. So I didn't watch the episode for the first time until about 1 a.m. And then I happened to catch the rerun again at 3.30 in the morning on BBC America. So I watched it back, back to back. Oh, gosh. You and I had dinner on Friday night, I believe, at 2 in the morning. So I think you yep. did a better job having dinner <laughs> last night than we did on Friday. Yeah, I, I'm a night owl, so... Something else I want to fact check. The doctor makes a claim about the name Eustatius. Sorry, Eustatius. She says the name is worth 33 points on the triple award score tile in Scrabble. Did anybody fact check that? That seems a bit lowball to me. <laughs> I, di- I can't even spell it, so I wasn't going to check it on Scrabble. <laughs> And then, of course, the doctor realized that you can't play it because it is a proper name. So I do want to do that in real life. It's one of these Doctor Who quotes that I want to recycle for my own purpose. The next time that I meet somebody with an unusual first name, I'm going to try and uh, guess the Scrabble value of their name. I guess it's a little more charming when the doctor does it. It might seem a little rude if I were to do it. So not only was Kevin McNally uh, coming back from the uh, depths of hell, or the twin dilemma, last night, 
My apologies to Joe Ford, last week's panelist, for whom Twin Dilemma is uh, what Pyramids of Mars is for me. Uh, the Angels were also returning last night. So this is a question that I've been grappling with all day. Uh, I'm going to start with Adam, and then we'll go to Denise and Jan. What n- what new elements did we learn about the Angels last night? Was there anything that improves from their legacy or detracts from their legacy? Or were they just doing the same things that we've already seen them do in all of their previous appearances? Uh, I don't have an answer to this, so I'm very curious to hear what you guys think, starting with Adam. I think a couple of things were clarified, like the the image of an angel can become an angel. It was made clear it doesn't create a new angel, but an angel, an, an existing angel can use it to appear. Where in the because um, it's an idea introduced in a uh, time of angels, and it's not it it's a little vaguer then. It, this was a little more solidified. Um, the fact they can rem- they can um, uh, remove an entire area out of time and space definitely that's. I want to say that's new. That feels new. Um, the fact that they seem to one th- one thing in the episode that's not entirely clear is the stone ruins ruins. Um, well, the angels gather at the end. It's kind of indicated that's how they got there, which in- kind of indicates it's some kind of angel spaceship. It's very vague. It's well, my I'm not quite sure, but that's definitely new. And I think the the biggest thing, as I mentioned earlier, was the fact that apparently you can hire them. Uh, presumably off an ad in Craigslist or something um, to, and they can <laughs> and also the, obviously the major thing and I think probably the greatest image in this in in, in this story and in, in the Jodie Whittaker era as a whole so far is the fact that they can turn you into an angel when they quantum extract you I mean that's that that's new that's definitely new uh, I'm going to come back and talk about that cliffhanger moment at the bottom of this hour because I saw a couple of other theories on that that I think are worth picking over. But uh, there was a point that I wanted to make that the angels have quantum extracted from my head. So I'll move on. Um, uh, Jan, what did you think of the angels last night? Did we learn anything new about them or was it just the same old, same old? I'd say for the most part it was same old, same old, but there were two things. One, I don't remember like the full like mind possession of a human being. I mean, the image of an angel can come into your mind, and I remember Amy was sort of kind of turning into an angel being messed with, but the whole everything that Diane was going through and the fact that the angel was hiding in her mind and controlling her and you know, basically possessing her to that extent seemed to be new. And the other thing is that when they were first introduced in the show, they were the lonely assassins, and they seemed to like work together but not for anybody else they were sort of you know self-contained and the fact that you know as adam pointed out you can hire them that they're suddenly a part of either the division or division because that name seems to be being used interchangeably it was odd to me that there were that many angels in that in that space you know and it seemed to be like seemingly hundreds of them and, and that they weren't working for themselves that they weren't you know doing whatever it is that angels do in their own agenda they were suddenly working for this bigger... We still don't know quite what the division is, but they suddenly were working for this other organization that's taking everybody else in, whether it's Lupari, whether it's Time Lords, whether it's, you know, we, we don't know who else is part of division. But it's it was very odd to me, and I'm not sure if that detracts or whether it'll eventually wind up to be in the plus column, but that seemed new to me also. And before I get to Nice, here was that question that I lost when Adam was talking. If a psychic is able to f- see 
the image of an angel in their mind's eye, and that angel can become real, shouldn't that work for anybody? If you can close your eyes and mentally picture an image, not just being a psychic, wouldn't that be the same? Uh, wouldn't just thinking about an angel force one to appear in your mind? Or am I overthinking that point? I, mean, I think that the, the way that you can get out of this thing, you have to have psychic abilities to actually have the power to do it. Or, you know, you can imagine an angel, but maybe they can't. But then again, Amy Pond sort of did it. At least she saw them and then she had it in her mind. So I don't know. It kind of, it's a good question because it's one of those that could go either way. That's a good point that you raise, actually, about this is the first time that we've seen a lone angel operating on its own. I don't recall Time of Angels very well. It's one of many new series stories that I've only seen once and never again. Now, like Denise, I was, of course, doing my pilgrimage through the classic series. I just finished Survival Thursday. We recorded this on Monday. And I'll be reaching the new series pretty soon, after I get through the wilderness years. So I, too, have just seen all of McCoy. Um, when I start watching the new series again, probably next week, I'll be able to see all the episodes that I've only seen once before, including Time of Angels and Flesh and Stone. But what I don't remember is this. Anyone can answer. Did the angels ever have a voice in that two-parter? Did we ever hear an angel speak? Yeah. Did we ever hear its thought processes represented? Yes. Yeah, yeah uh, they spoke through one of the... Uh the, the, the church members, after they killed him, they like snapped his neck and then were using him, his vocal cords and spoke through him. But we never heard an angel's, seemingly an angel's own voice. That's a very Moffat trope, though. Kind of like the, um, I forget their name, in Silence in the Library, where the uh, skeleton Right, the person can still speak as a skeleton. Who turned out the lights? Um, so... Let's segue then into Jody. This is a point that Jan and I both made um, on the Triskaidekaphobia panel on Saturday at LIU. And it's that you have to separate out Jody from Chris Chibnall. Because this is not a live show and it's not improv. Jody is not writing her own lines. She is given Chibnall's dialogue, which is not always, you know things that human beings would actually say um, with proper syntax. But I love the way that she is able to interpret his dialogue. She has this trick where she'll get lost in the middle of a sentence and stop and try and puzzle out her thought processes and then finish the sentence in a very enthusiastic head of steam. And she's doing this quite a bit lately. And some of that is taking the words as scripted, but the rest of it is her interpretation of the emotions of the line. So she'll do a lot of puzzling out a problem in mid-sentence, and she'll have a lot of mood changes as the sentence goes along. I love the way that she does that. I think it's a very strong part of her character. So uh, starting with Jan, then Adam and Denise, how incredible was Jody last night, and how was her performance against the rest of the episode? I think Jody was magnificent um, last night. I just really, really was impressed by what she was doing. I've been a big fan of hers for years, and one of my big uh, frustrations with season eleven and twelve. And now that I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go on a long diatribe right now about the entire Chibnall era, but she's frustrated me because she hasn't been allowed to emote, and I don't think she's been allowed to act to the level and to the extent that I know she's capable of. And the entire this entire series, she's been an entirely different creature. Um, so I think she was emoting. I think she, we saw the doctor angry. We saw the doctor 
fearful or concerned. We've seen her anxious, confused. And I especially liked when the angels uh, inside of Diane was first, you know, trying to bargain and then dangling all sorts of, you know, tantalizing information about her missing memories. And I, I just thought it was really, really well done. I think she's suddenly been allowed to be off whatever leash she was on and to be herself fully formed as the doctor. And it saddens me that we're finally getting 13 as a doctor and not just sort of like a character walking through this close to the end of her tenure. So I, I thought she was great. And Adam, how about you? Well, first of all, I want to say I think you were very rude about Chris Chibnall's dialogue, and my beautiful and as yet unborn child also agrees. Um, but no, I think I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I agree what Jan was saying. I think this season has actually seen Jodie able to do a bit of actual acting and, and put a real range on. And I think actually one of the reasons for that is that they've they've cut away most of the companions. As she's given more freedom, she could be. She's not passive which she could be in the previous couple of, of, of series and I, I think it's really interesting actually I was talking to my my dad's like 88 years old and he's been watching Dot 2 for obviously decades and he, he you know he, it's nice talking to him about it because he's in no way involved in any online discourse or anything like that so I get a really straight honest opinion from him and the first thing he said to me was oh, it's good they've got rid of most of the companions <laughs> I think yeah I thought she was brilliant in this episode you know like, like I'm saying she she really got to run the whole you know the whole gauntlet, and I think my actual favourite moment though was um, when she set alight the pit of the angel, and then the angel appeared burning, and she just went right, made it worse, <laughs> which just and I, I I don't always feel they I think she's she can be very funny, but I don't always feel they write for the sort of humour she's really good at, and I think that kind of thing is, is really where her strength lies for humor any rate so that was really nice to see um but no I, I thought she was fantastic you know really really this this definitely one of and this ep- good season for her acting wise and this episode very strong for her i mean adam and i disagree on chibnall's dialogue abilities <laughs> there were some very funny lines we'll get to in a minute but i think we both agree she is phenomenal this year and Again, for me, she's been getting better and better as her tenure goes on, and I'm kind of sorry that we don't have too much more of her left. Uh, Denise, talk to me about Jodie's performance last night. How did it strike you? Um, well, one of the things about the Flux season, um, particularly the first episode where we get to see a lot of violent deaths at the hands of Swarm, um, was it's always a concern to me how are you going to get the younger audience to watch? Because it is quite frightening. It's extremely dark, watching entire planets being destroyed and so forth. But then you see Jodie Whittaker, and she is, of course, doing what the Doctor is supposed to do in that regard. And she is the person who is explaining things. She is the person who is figuring things out. She is the person who is hypnotizing the younger, the children, the children who are watching it and bringing them in and guiding them through it. And obviously the cliffhanger at the end of this week's episode is very, very frightening for a young viewer for exactly that reason, because this incredibly vibrant, lively, talking 19 miles a minute person is now an angel. And, um, Yes, it, you know, the contrast of the vibrancy of her performance throughout the episode, the gamut of emotions that she ran, 
who knows how many lines she has to speak in a in a 55 minute episode it's incredible and then suddenly she's frozen that was a image that we're going to be seeing a lot of for years to come and i want to talk about that cliffhanger at, at a little more length but let's build up to that I want to talk about the visuals. Uh, Jen, it was either you or Kat on the panel on Saturday at LI Who was talking about how this is the most visually sumptuous season that we've gotten in Doctor Who so far. And some of that is because of the pandemic. We have very limited recording capabilities, and we have a lot of work being done on green screen as opposed to on location. Um... Jamie Magnus Stone, this was, I think, the last of his three episodes for this season. And then the gentleman who directed episode three is back for the last two weeks. What did you think of his direction? What did you think of the visual look of the story? I think it was amazing. I mean, I think you know, you can see that a lot of it was like set within a set, so especially Dr. Jericho's house. But uh, there was location sh- shooting going because a lot of the village stuff was outdoors. And I remember um, I'm also on Gallifrey Base, which is the Doctor Who forum, and I follow spoilers a lot. And the image of Diane and and an angel and the doctor in the water. I think that was shot by Barry Island in Wales. Um, that was everybody knew that that was happening. That's how we kind of knew that weeping angels were coming back to some extent, and everybody was sort of trying to surmise, like, what was going on there. So when I finally saw that image, I was like, oh, yeah, right, that's right. I forgot that that had happened, and I thought it was beautiful. I mean, I think the only thing that maybe didn't work for me a little bit was kind of the the line between, you know, 1901 and 1967 and the sort of barrier there, but it's the BBC-level budget, so you can't always get everything you want. But um, I, I I think Flux in general, the look and the, the art direction, the cinematography has been great. It really, really looks good. And so I think this is, again, this season has been not only well-written, well-acted, but also striking visually, even more so than previous years, which is the one thing that I think was good in past seasons. See, I didn't know that about Barry Island, because I avoid spoilers as much as possible, and I try and go into every episode as cold as possible. But... This is ringing a bell for me because, like Denise, I've been doing my Sylvester McCoy years, and I happen to remember from the season 24 Blu-ray box set that Barry Island is where they filmed Delta and the Bannerman. So, of course, the holiday camp there is gone, but I wonder if they shot in some of the same meadows or fields as Delta. And as Adam says, if this is the best episode of Doctor Who to feature Kevin McNally... Which is the best episode of Doctor Who to feature Barry Island, Delta or Village? Mm, now there's a tough call, isn't there? <laughs> um, I mean, there is a lot to love about Delta and the Bannerman. I love Delta and the Bannerman. But uh, Denise, same question for you. Uh, what about last night's direction was visual or striking or noteworthy for you? Um, there were some very, very nice touches. Um I like um, I like the contrast when we're going off and we're seeing um, what's her name Beck um, off with her unborn child off having yeah, adventures. No. I think the way the um, dovetail into each other, the juxtaposition. I like that a lot. Um, I loved the scene inside Claire's mind. Um, the 
the way the wind whipped the two girls' hair. I thought that was absolutely stunning. Um, when Jodie gets a bit tousled and it goes a bit curly when it's damp, I think that's so cute. And then she's back all straight, but her roots in need of some attention when uh, when she's back in the real world again. But uh, that's how she regenerated, wasn't it? Bleach blonde, dark roots, what are you going to do? But, um, yeah, um, it didn't strike me as being one an episode that was full of directorial flourishes, but then we have been very spoilt with this season with regards to directorial touches. So I think maybe the bar is already quite high, you know. There were a lot of scenes of the angels attacking people under flickering lights, which... Again, it didn't wow me as much as it may have wowed some people on Twitter or Facebook because I feel like we've seen all that before. But it was remarkably well done. Uh, Magnus Stone is a very, very visually striking director going back to his work with uh, Spyfall, etc. in the 2020 season. But what did you think of the image where they reach the end of the village and they're looking out into space? I thought that was a gorgeous image and that's going to stay with me for a long time. Yes. Yes, that that was very, very beautiful. And um, I don't read a lot on... I try to stay spoiler-free, and I also do not want to see a tsunami of negativity after I've been watching a show that I personally enjoy as well. But um, a lot of people have been drawing parallels with this story and the story Hyde, which, um, again, there was the... Uh, the sort of woodland area which is set just floating around on its own and there's the the two people in the deserted house doing experiments on psychic links and uh, psychological experiments on each other and um sorry i'm <laughs> i'm not at my most coherent it's getting quite late for me but um yeah it's um it's a good story and uh I'm looking forward to seeing it again, because I think I need to. There's a lot going on there. You and me both. And Adam, how about you, in terms of the direction from Jamie Magnus Stone? Yeah, I mean, I think I've already brought up several of the visual images. I do suspect of the um, some of the praise comes from the fact that there's a lot of dark wood panelling in in, uh, in shots, and people immediately think the Hinchcliffe era. So for a certain type of classic Who fan, that immediately makes it the the best thing ever it's probably why it's getting compared to Hyde a lot as well uh, again a lot of dark wood panelling very nice very Hinchcliffe um, but yeah I don't always notice great direction or but I tend to notice bad if that makes sense but yeah I, I generally felt it was it was you know I didn't notice anything wrong with it so that probably means it was good direction and, and the images will, will stay with me the burning angel the, the cliffhanger and you know I, yeah yeah I I it was it, it was it slightly threw me seeing the effect of people disappearing because I think previously in previous Angels episodes you've not actually seen someone be made to disappear like the camera's always cut away but here you actually see the effect that's fine not a complaint it just for some reason really threw me when when it when I first saw it but but no I thought directly speaking and visual visually especially you know like, honestly probably the Strongest visual episode of the Jodie Whittaker era so far. And Jan, I believe you have a little more detail for us about Barry Island. 
Yeah, um, I just remembered that it actually had uh, been in the, the UK news. And yeah, on January 11th, um, they were down at the beach. It's called Nap, K-N-A-P, Beach on Barry Island. And they were shooting the scene of Jody and the the angel in the water. And I'm just trying to figure out how, you know, how much, how miserable everybody must have been to be like in the cold water down on a windy island in the middle or the beginning of January, basically. So, and I guess they were also shooting around Penarth um, in Wales at the same time because they said the angels had been seen around there. So, definitely a lot of location stuff, actual location versus green screen, at least in this episode. Whereas Delta and the Bannerman was filmed in glorious summer and everybody was sweltering. So the last time yeah. Doctor Who was on Barry Island, we had one of my favorite Broadway actors, Stubby K, in a pretty major part. Last night, apart from Kevin McNally, I was not familiar with the other performers who were involved. So I guess I'll aim this question at Adam and or Denise. Uh, were there any other members of the guest cast last night that were particularly noteworthy? And what did you think of the villagers um, in the Village of the Angels? I didn't recognize any other actors, Oh, apart from the one from the Inbetweeners in the... Yes, actually, they had Neil from the Inbetweeners in the bell section. Um, I can't think of the actors' names. Um, but as a village... Namaka. Thank you. Um, but as as for the villagers, I thought that everyone was, again, solid cast. The, the, I thought that the little girl, Peggy, she was good. Uh, which can always be a bit hit and miss with child actors. I thought her great-great-uncle was suitably... Uh, he, you weren't too sad when he disintegrated into dust, uh, put it that way. <laughs> but yeah, generally, strong strong cast. And speaking of strong cast, last night we saw a lot of Yaz and Dan together uh, for the bulk of the episode, which is kind of a new look for the two of them. I'll just throw this out to the panel. What did you think of their dynamic together uh, now as co-companions? I think I think that they're pretty good. I just I just can't get over how this must all look from Dan's point of view, where it's only been I don't think it's even been twenty four hours for him since since this all started, <laughs> and he's already kind of like settled in. He he settled very quickly into becoming a Doctor companion, <laughs> and, and, um, but no, I mean I think. It'll be interesting to see the next episode where I get an impression. Obviously, they'll um, they'll be spending a lot of time. I think maybe we'll get, I'll get a better handle on the dynamic. But at the moment, yeah, it's it works. That that can't complain. I do love the um, easy dialogue between them. I mean, um, you know, they're both self confident people. They're both used to speaking to strangers, and they're thrown into strange situations, and they just deal with it. Um, yeah, they they have a really really good dynamic, but I think with with Yaz, she does seem to be very good at immediately obtaining a rapport with people, which I guess is what would have made her quite a good police officer if she had any actual time to do her day job. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was going to say that I think that. It, they're very good, and I, I like the dynamic between them more, much more than I ever liked the dynamic between Graham and Ryan and Yaz, because Yaz somehow always wound up be, being you know, shuttled to the side, and she just was not allowed to flourish, and we didn't really get to know her as a character. Last night especially, I was impressed by the fact that they actually 
they actually let her be a police officer. Mm. Um, she was actually, you know, trying to look for this missing child. She was actually asking the right questions, trying to figure out what was going on as compared to episodes in the past where she could have used like police skills and they just like completely forgot that she was a, a police officer or that she had, she had anything to do in the story at all. So I really like the fact that she's finally coming to the forefront and they're letting Mandip Gill do things and, you know, Yaz be her own person, not sort of just, you know, an accessory or a third wheel between Ryan and Graham as a, you know, a duo, not romantically, obviously. So, And hopefully we'll see more of that next week, which is going to begin where they've been together on Barry Island for three years, uh, minus the doctor. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out. The, what we didn't see last night was a lot of the recurring characters from the first uh, three episodes of the Flux. And last week's episode, I had made the analogy that this kind of tracks with the Dalek's Master Plan. It's a six-hour episode, and Dalek's Master Plan is pretty easily broken down into pairs. One and two is a pair, three and four is a pair. We'd be up to the Dalek's Master Plan equivalent of seven and eight, which was a two-part holiday special in the middle of the main story. There was the Christmas Day special, The Feast of Seven, with no Daleks at all. And then you had another uh, one-off New Year's uh, special, um, Episode 8, which I believe was Volcano. So, similar to that, we had a break from much of uh, the main plot last night. So, Swarm did not appear. Carvinista did not appear. Williamson, our uh, befuddled old Liverpudlian gentleman with the tunnels, did not appear. Diane did not appear. She is still trapped inside Passenger. Vinder did appear, but not until a Marvel Comics uh, or an MCU-style mid-end credits sequence. So we had Belle in a couple of scenes on her own, on a different planet, bumping into Azure. Um, I am certainly uh, not making any secret of the fact that I think that Thaddeus Graham is amazing, and I was completely taken with Belle from the get-go last week. And she didn't have as much to do, well, in episode four, she did in episode three, and she's not in as many scenes. But again, I thought she was really good where she takes charge with Lamaka when Azura shows up, and she's the only one who knows what's going on. And she saves the two of them from being trapped by a passenger. Um, what did we think last night of the Bell and Vinder material? Uh, was it good, or did it perhaps uh, stick out because it was so disconnected from the rest of the story, which was so angels heavy? I like it. I mean, um, we've seen enough of Belle to care about her, and um, it is great that there is this love story going on. Um, when I first saw um, saw him and Yaz together, I thought, oh, is there a spark between them? But it's just Yaz getting on with people again. And, um, yeah, uh, I liked it very much. It reminded me a little bit of... Um, the 1970s Quatermass show series. I don't know if you yeah. know that one, where um, yeah. beams of beams of light come from space, attracted to standing stones, where lots of uh, young people, hippies, are drawn to gather, and um, it takes them all up, or they think it's taking them all up to another planet, but in fact, it's just killing them. 
and spoiler alert, sorry. And um, and of course, what they they're all waiting for Azure to do is put them into the passenger, and they think they're going to be saved, but they're not. So that was I'm a massive Quatermass fan. So that was something that uh, that I enjoyed, an interesting idea. You know, when it comes to the 1970s, um, Adam had made the point earlier about the wood panel walls. As a child of the 70s, wood panel walls are kind of my default for architecture. The only thing that would have made it better was burnt orange shag <laughs> carpet, which in the 1970s in America went with wood panel walls like hand and glove. I guess 1967 was a little bit too early for the burnt orange shag carpeting that I grew up with and know so well. <laughs> We also had some great dialogue last night. Uh, the line that I like best is when the doctor discovers the assignation tunnel in the old house and says, I've never been more grateful for another man's deceit. Anyone else have any great dialogue lines they wanted to talk about from last night? I mean, I did enjoy, kind of enjoy, the um, conversation between um, the little girl's uh, adoptive foster carers because... Uh, you know, he's like, how dare you talk to me like this? And she says, I'm talking to you like this because of 47 years of pain. <laughs> and you just think, yeah, they've been together all too long. <laughs> well, not anymore. <laughs> well, no, not anymore. But I don't think that was, uh, I think they'd have preferred a divorce, but it wasn't so easy back in 1967, I guess. But, uh, but yes, I mean, I thought, you know, the callous cruelty of um, mm. she's a 10 year old girl what is there to know about her I mean that was you know the parenting kind of of that generation that's something that no modern father or mother would think you know their child is unique special centre of the universe but back then no it was still very much seen and not heard territory so that that struck me my daughter is 11, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Adam, were there any standout dialogue lines um, for you last night? I think um, I, I agree actually about that line. Uh, she's a 10 year old girl. You know, what do you say? That was really because that's a nice little period point, but also a character moment as well. Um, I rather liked what was it? I'm trying to what did Peggy say when he was disintegrated? Like, oh, he was never very nice to me. I thought that was weirdly sinister in in the way that I I, I appreciated. I think I've always m already mentioned my favorite dots line of oh right made it worse. Um, yeah, I think that, that yeah you know it was it was good. I despite what I just said earlier, I'm not a fan of Chibnall dialogue, so it's really nice to have another. Um, it was in fact it was very refreshing to have uh, Maxine Alderton's dialogue in there because. She doesn't seem to add five extra words to every sentence unnecessarily, so I, I appreciated that. That's a convenient segue to my next question, but before I go there, uh, Jen, did you have any particular bits of dialogue that jumped out at you last night, or in your case, earlier this morning? Uh, you guys basically hit the ones that I that I remember. I mean, I, just the overall episode, I was really surprised and pleased that I think in general the, the dialogue kind of sparkled and sparked. I mean, this was co-written by uh, Maxine Alderton, so I don't know whether or not she contributed to why I liked it so much, but it definitely worked. So, uh, but yeah, other than the ones already cited, I can't think of anything right off the top of my head, but it was good. So I'll throw this out to the group. 
I don't know the answer to this, and I'm sure the answer will be revealed in the fullness of time. Was any? This is the only episode of the season that has a co-writer credit to somebody else besides Chibnall. Can anyone figure out how much of last night was Maxine Alderton and how much was Chibnall? Did she submit a script that he rewrote, or did she do a polish of his? Anybody have any ideas? I do. Um, I think... I was going to say, I think originally when they were pl- plotting out season 13, they were going to have standalone stories. The original, you know, before pre-COVID, when everything was being produced, they had planned, I, I don't know how many episodes they were going to do, but it was more than six. And I think he's already had the idea sort of of having a, a long going arc, but it was going to be more of the the kind that we've seen in the last couple of you know years or last 10 years, where we've got something that it goes long form, but it kind of bounces back and forth. And I think I read somewhere that this was a standalone story of hers initially. There was just going to be a, an angel story that he then folded into the the six part. But I don't know why no anybody else's story didn't make it there. Ah, so I guess all the stuff about the quantum extraction team and the doctor's mysterious backstory, that's probably all Chibnall. And that, I guess, would chalk the cliffhanger up to Chibnall as well. I, no, I, I see. I, I would... I... Got the impression. I wondered if this was like obviously her episode in the last season led directly into his the two part finale, and I wondered if this was the same because I feel like the leading up everything in the in the main story feels like it's leading up to that that cliffhanger in a way. It doesn't feel like like it was going to go anywhere else. I, I at least I could be completely wrong. I I felt like at least all the bits set in the village were probably Maxine's and. The, the bell stuff was probably more chibnall. Um but I, I that was just right. And Professor Jericho, that would make Professor Jericho a uh, Alden, Alden yeah. creation as yeah, well, yeah. I guess. Which actually makes sense because if you think of Villa um, uh, Di um, at least for me, all the characters, you know, Shelley and Mary Shelley, and, and that all really sang, mm. and that was all yeah. Alderton, and it's not, it's not very chibnall esque, so. Jericho um, and possibly even Diane, if he if he only seeded her as a character early on, work kind of you know within that storyline. So that may all be there were all a couple her. of lines last night that were classic Doctor Who quotes, and this is almost certainly a chimnal. Anyone catch Jody talking about reversing yeah. the polarity of the yeah, neutron yeah. flow? Absolutely. And, yep. And the closest that we got to reenacting the missing episode two of the Ice Warriors is the doctor also said, when I say run, run. I was happy to hear that again. Uh, Just to jump back for a minute, before we talk about the cliffhanger, again, I'm the moderator, so I'm trying to keep my opinions out of this with a smashing lack of success. I did not like uh, what happened to Peggy's great aunt and uncle. Uh, these are stern, mean people. They refuse to listen to her. They meet a horrible fate. For me, that was something out of Roald Dahl, which I do not mean as a compliment. And when they get, you know, destroyed by the angels, which, as someone else pointed out earlier, wasn't what was happening uh, earlier on um, in Angels Take Manhattan, where the angels could zap you unlimited times. Uh, I that really took me out of the episode. That occurred at about the two thirds mark, and it, it really was uh, a big negative for me. Uh, did anyone else think that was just too cruel and not, uh, you know, too nihilistic, or, or was that the kind of thing you would expect in period fiction? 
I found it a little bit over the top, and I know Adam said that he liked the line um, from Peggy about he wasn't very, he was never very nice. I thought that was a little psychopathic of her. I kind of felt like her her lack of empathy and her lack of response, even if she was angry, I you know, or, or you know, or she'd shown some. She just seemed like very flat, and it just seemed like she kind of tossed it off like it was no big deal, and that kind of bothered me. Peggy, and I felt that that about Peggy's character in general that there was something a little off about her. But then we saw, you know, spoiler alert, Mrs. Hayward was Peggy in the future, and she was a totally different personality. So I'm not sure what was going on there. But um, I mean, and and also they weren't very nice, but you know, they weren't to the level of like a Roll Doll esque, you know, Matilda's parents or whatever, where they were absolute monsters. They just were kind of period not very nice people. So yeah, it was a little over the top for me. I didn't mind the fact that um, they the, the 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 rules have changed with the angels because to be honest, it's like Daleks don't run on static electricity anymore. You know, there's always this. You know, that's not, actually what I like about Doctor Who is the continuity, even in the modern series, is loose enough that the rules sometimes just change, and you and you leave it to Big Finish to work out why it doesn't. You know. Well, and of course, they're, they're in an area which has been quantum extracted. So perhaps that means that they can't just send them back multiple mm-hmm. times because they're already in this one trap. So they can't send them elsewhere because they're in a quantum enclosed space anyway. So it could be something like that. But, um, I mean, we've seen a lot of deaths so far this season. We have seen swarm destroying countless people trapped inside passengers and individuals as well and so yes the body count went up by two it was a different way of dying but uh, this is what is happening this season a lot of people are dying and these people they weren't going to be happy they weren't happy when they were alive you know it was a mercy killing they were making each other miserable I think also we can hand wave it as possibly, uh, you know, an unknown, heretofore unknown power from the angels where they can just turn people to stone and blow them up because they want to or they find them annoying rather than just tying it in with angels, you know, that, that nobody survives the angels twice. You can just say, okay, well, they didn't like them. They decided they were a nuisance, so they blew them up. Move they on. kind of had much um, quantum life force inside of those two, I'm pretty yeah. sure. He'd have yeah. the same coat since 1949. Come on. <laughs> I am wondering what it says about Peggy as she grows up to be Miss Hayward that she was able to live in the same village as her 10-year-old self and never do anything to help her out or give herself comfort. Um, so right. the last principal question that I have, and then I'll give you all a chance for a summation. Who wants to take a go at explaining the ramifications of that cliffhanger? Because my initial thought and this was echoed by a few uh, random folks that I was looking at on Twitter under the Doctor Who Flux hashtag. If the Doctor was ex- was quantum extracted and turned to a weeping angel, is that a form of imprisonment that the angels have where they can turn you into an angel? Like, if you're touched by a Wirin in the Ark in space, you become a Wirin. Or does that mean she was an angel all along? like that Twilight Zone episode about the department store uh, dummies, or was she perhaps, or were the angels, the Time Lords in the previous universe that the Timeless Child comes from? Uh, I think there was a lot of different ways to unpack that. Does anybody want to have a go? I think it's probably the simplest thing, which is just its uh, form of imprisonment. I mean, Chibnall's already 
essentially said the Doctor is Jason Bourne, so I don't think he'd make her an angel as well. Um, but I, I, I would presume it's just... I mean, it's just an amazing visual, isn't it, at the end of the day? But I think it's I, I think it's the simplest explanation. I think it's a form of imprisonment, presumably. You know, everyone's looking at us so she can't move. So... I, I think you could be right, but of course the overwhelming thought in my mind was um, that's going to be a popular model, you know, mm. the popular, mm. it's not exactly an action figure because it's not going to move, but uh, I have many, many friends who collect the various action figures and dollies and things, and I just thought, wow, they're going to want one of those. And actually... Um I was just about to say, because I'm involved with costuming, cosplay, and I actually run masquerades at conventions, I'm wondering how many of those we're going to see at Gallifrey One this coming uh, February. So, because it's, it's an awesome <laughs> visual, and I think it'll be a, a lot of people do cosplay as angels to start with. So, cos, Dr. Angel cosplay is going to be a huge deal, and I can't wait to see it. Jen, are you going to do that yourself? Because I thought I saw you as Jody on, on, on uh, Saturday night. Um, no, I probably won't because I don't have time and I'm actually, uh, this is probably my first official announcement that I'm going to be running the masquerade or what, I'm not sure what we're calling it now because it's non-competitive coming up, but I will be running that at Galley One this year myself. Um, so I probably won't have time to do that kind of level of makeup and, and, and everything else, but I'm looking forward to seeing other people doing it. But yeah, I have a, I have a Spyfall costume. I have just the general, you know, doctor, you know, blue shirt pants thing too so and a mashup variant um with marvel that i was going to do this weekend and then kind of check it out because it's not I quite look forward to seeing yet, it next so. time so those are all the questions that i had about village of the angels um adam starting with you any final thoughts about the episode things you're hoping to see next week um any any last comment yeah i mean I was quite cold on it the first time I saw it. It definitely improved on my second viewing. Um, I enjoyed it. I'm not a huge fan. I'm not a huge fan of the 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 the, the uh, I was going to say the diversion, the division. Um, and I'm I'm not personal taste, but like I said, it doesn't it isn't quite working for me. So. You know that I don't say it soured me on it a, li- a bit, but it it wasn't my favourite aspect. But overall, I I didn't particularly enjoy last week's episode. So this was a definite improvement. Um, I think it's going to be interesting. All Chibnall now until twenty twenty three. So it was nice to see you know our last gasp of non Chibnall dialogue before that stretch. Um, before we get RTD back. Uh, so yeah, no, overall, I think enjoyable, strong, definitely visually. I think this has come up with the images that are going to define this era. Um, and yeah, we'll just, we'll just see how he lands the ending. That's all I'll say. <laughs> uh, whether that will change what I think we'll see. I, I, I personally, I don't think Chibnall lands endings so much as crashes them into the mountain while the passengers <laughs> scream. Um, but I'm always hopeful. I genuinely am always hopeful. So we'll, we'll see. But yeah, st- strong, definitely the strongest episode. Yeah, I, I actually, I wouldn't have said this after my first viewing, but after my second viewing, strongest episode. Denise, any last thoughts? 
I am just waiting for the next episode. I am enjoying the ride very much. I have no preconceptions. I have no expectations. I just want to see where this goes. Like you, I saw a lot of like, I don't want to say over the top, but I saw some very, very strong visceral, you know, loved it, best episode ever reaction starting actually about two to three o'clock on Saturday because uh, on my Twitter feed and on my Facebook feed, because obviously I have a lot of UK friends and I was, I liked it. I did not think this was the greatest episode of Doctor Who ever. Um, I enjoyed it, but as I've been saying, like the, my caveat all the way through is we're, we're not done with it yet. It's a self-contained story and I want to see where everything goes at the end. And like Adam, you know, a chibnall worries me in terms of trying to stick that landing and failing miserably. So I want to see how it all kind of ties together before I make my final decision. Because I think a rewatch of the entire series once we know where it ends may change my mind. But I thought the, the Angel story was good. I had a lot of fun with that. And I certainly enjoyed it more than last week, which, as Jason, you know, may say, he had to basically explain the entire you know, what was happening in episode three over our two o'clock in the morning dinner because I could not follow it for, for head or tail. So this was much more linear. This was much more easy to follow and I enjoyed it. So I liked it and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Just, just to fill the rest of you in, uh, we were sitting at an all night diner all the way out on Eastern Long Island on Friday night into Saturday morning. And as we're sitting there having our it was so late that we were having breakfast instead of dinner. Uh, I'm sitting there trying to demonstrate using my home fries and toast exactly how time flowed in episode three. And I was speaking <laughs> a bit perhaps too loud. And we were the only Doctor Who people in the diner. Probably got a lot of strange glances from the uh, employees and other diners. And that is going to wrap us up for this week. That concludes our discussion of Doctor Who Flux. Or I guess as the characters, pronou- as the characters pronounce it, Flux. Episode 4. Thank you for joining us on the Trap One Podcast. The executive producer of the Trap One Podcast and our founder and creator is Mark, who also edited this week's episode. You can find Mark on Twitter at Quark McMalice. That's Quark as in the Dominators, Mick as in McCrimmon, and Malice as in the Awakening. Denise, where can our listeners find you online? I am at Cup of Tea 69 on Twitter. That is mainly where I live, but I'm not there a great deal of the time at the moment because I moved house a month ago, so I'm still creating order out of chaos. Jan, where can our listeners find you? You can find me under my name, Jan Fennick, on Facebook or at total underscore Janicky on Instagram. Adam, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Adam J. Clegg. Uh, you can also follow my podcasts, uh, which are The Real McCoy, which is an in-depth look at the Seventh Doctor era, at real underscore pod. And Harry Sullivan is an imbecile, which is at imbecile pod. And you you and Eric, I think, just covered the uh, New Adventure Love and War? Yes, that literally, well, that went out today at this time of recording. Um, and we're, we're not doing all the New Adventures because... I couldn't persuade Eric to do all 60 of them, though I'd, I'd quite like to. But we're doing transit next. I can say that. I am looking forward to hearing the Love and War episode. That was a very influential book in my early fandom, so I'm quite excited to hear what the two of you have to say. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, 
and under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. I am in the middle of the wilderness years now. I will probably be getting to Dimensions in Time tonight. Assuming this drops on Tuesday, I will be on more than 30 years in the Taurus. I'll then be covering uh, Downtime and uh, Shakedown, two of the Who-adjacent spinoff videos before I get to the TV movie, which I will probably do over the long Thanksgiving weekend. Please also check out my new solo podcast, Doctor Who Literature, that's currently available on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and through my Twitter handle, uh, Episode 2, Doctor Who and the Zarbi, my discussion of the second-ever Doctor Who novelization just dropped yesterday in the middle of the convention. You can find Trap1 on Twitter, at Trap1 underscore, and you can find all of our past episodes on trap1.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. Thank you for listening. Trap 1 will return with a brand new panel next week to discuss Chapter 5, Survivors of the Flux. Good night now. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.